Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Screaming Through the Ages to cap off my kaiju coverage. And this is going to be a little bit different. I have a guest on here for the first time in a little while, and it is uh, Nathan Bartlebaugh from the Phantom Galaxy series of podcasts. Nathan, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I think it's just from the Phantom Galaxy. And then, you know, <laughs> every, I, I've, you know, every episode is something a little bit different, but uh, we've been on high. So I've got all these different episodes. It's, it, it makes it more interesting as I'm editing, but it also is trying to be a little more creative in how to market all these different things we've got going on. But hey, this is pretty easy. I'm on here to talk about Kaju. So I'm very excited. Yeah, I think I came up with this idea of us to just get on here and do like our top list because... Yeah, I didn't really know where I was going with the kaiju. So I feel like I went through seven or eight different iterations of what I was going to actually do with those episodes. So I said, you know what, this will be fun and easy for us to do. So I've been promoting this a little bit. What we're going to do is run down. We each made a list of our top 10 with a few honorable mention kaijus. And we are going to we put those together and came up with our top 15. So we had a little bit of a variety so what we're going to do first is we're going to just run down this list that we put together and then we might talk about some of our weirder or off the cuff kaiju after that and then following it up to end the show with a probably a mini review of Paul Gasari from 1986 I believe. So Nathan, you want to jump into this? Do you want to get us started with this list and read number 15? Sure, I can do that. So number 15 is Shiro Honda's Rodan uh, from 1956. Rodan is essentially like a giant pterodactyl. You know, he's sort of kin with Godzilla. This was a little bit after Godzilla, and it's it's clearly in that vein. Honda's making the same sort of movie. But uh, what I love about Rodan is, A, he flies, which is... At this point in time, when it comes out, you've got Godzilla and King Kong who are very much lumbering and on the ground. And so what I love about Rodan is that he's essentially like this giant, you know, just a missile flight. Like when they see him initially, they don't know what he is. And I love these sort of like there's a couple of these giant flying monster movies from the 50s where, uh, you know, the first thought is it's, oh, it's another country's like aircraft, but then it's too big to be that. And so I love that. But what I love, uh, Rodan himself, I think is an amazing monster. For years, I had seen the picture of him where he sort of raises up over the bridge. He's kind of coming out of the water above the bridge. And I'd seen that image long before I ever saw the movie. I think what is cool about the film that he's in is that uh, it starts as one kind of monster movie. It's sort of a subterranean giant bug movie and you have that the the shot where the one of the miners has made his way past these giant bugs which are like what like they're almost like giant centipedes right down Mm -hmm. in this uh in the the chambers of the mine and when he makes his way to the center of the mine the things that have been you know causing all the problems for the first third of this movie he, he comes out into this giant sort of cavern and there's Rodan and it's so massive that it's picking these things up like they're, you know, like they're peanuts and flipping them into its mouth. <laughs> so <laughs> I love the scale on that, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of Rodan. Yeah. And I love Rodan as well. And I, for the first time I had seen that movie recently, I think I was going to watch it a couple years ago and I just didn't get to it, but 
I feel like that in the original Mothra and the original Godzilla are all in the same vein of their very serious films to an extent. I mean, Mothra is a little lighter, but they feature that one monster. And I think Rodan has kind of got the short straw once we moved out of the Showa era movies. But I really like um, Rodan. And that first time we see Rodan is pretty cool. But you kind of get the feeling of there's a reason why they didn't show this thing up close all the time. (laughs) But I really like the puppet that they used in um, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2 that Rodan is in. And I think Rodan is really cool looking in that one. So do you have a favorite moment from Rodan or what you've seen him in, Nathan? Yeah, like I say, I think that my favorite shot is that one where you see it in the cavern. It's very surreal, and it, it the shadows and stuff hide some of the shabbiness of the – not shabbiness, but the clunkiness of the costumes. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with Rodan being a flying creature. Ultimately, you'd want it to look uh, – it's different from Mothra, who sort of gracefully sort of careens along once once Mothra is flying. And, of course, Mothra is usually a little more benevolent when uh, by we get to that point. It's when she's a giant – when she's on the ground, she causes destruction. But I, what I love, I think my favorite Rodan moment, actually, like out of all the movies, I, the one right above me on my shelf here, I do have, uh, it's probably from Bandai. It's the version of Rodan that was in the Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the show. I think that's maybe one of the best looking suits, but I really love the way, probably the, my favorite monster portrayal in the legendaries, uh, in, in Michael Darty's Godzilla King of the Monsters was Rodan. That moment when it tears itself right up out of the, the the interior of that mountain and the big volcanic destruction and like yeah where where it's like a Buenos Aires or something and it just like comes up spins around and it has fire on its wings like a phoenix like I up until that point of the film I had been rather sort of I was enjoying their portrayals of the monsters but none of them were like catching on I'm like wow that's impressive and I just loved that uh, introduction. Yeah, and I'll tell you that that trailer that they released with the the four monster introductions uh, got got a little choked up there, Nathan. It was pretty pretty good trailer. Whether that translated to the film or not, I do like the movie, but yeah, <laughs> I love all the monster stuff. I think the monster stuff is pretty solid. Some of the some there's some classic moments, in my opinion, in those films that that rank with some of the the best monster stuff. The rest of the movie is. It's a giant monster. It's a kaiju movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're, we are going to alternate here, but I feel like you should probably do number 14. Since I have not seen the movie, this one's in. Sure. So this one is the Redosaurus, and it's from The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which incidentally was the same uh, year as Godzilla. A little bit before. Uh, it may have... Uh, I'm not quite sure on exact release dates in terms of country, but uh, it's enough before that there is a suspicion and expectation that probably one, in this case, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the Redosaurus, influenced (laughs) the other one. This is one of the creatures I think is on this list because uh, one that I picked. So yeah, this came out in 1953. So it is, I think when it comes out, it's just about a year space apart from 1954's Godzilla. But guess what? A ferocious dinosaur is awakened by an atomic test, and then it goes, it ends up making its way across the ocean, menaces some fishing trawlers on the way, pops up in the main uh, 
in, in probably the most populated city in the country and destroys things. Sound familiar? And then they have to create a weapon of uh, mass destruction that, that they can use to destroy it, uh, that they have to get close enough to attack it with. I love this movie. This is one of the reasons I wanted to get this on the list is first off the dinosaurs i think its design is great because it is a dinosaur and i think this is where that idea of this isn't just an irradiated animal this is a prehistoric thing that was once alive hasn't ever been alive uh with people around it and now this one is not even just a dinosaur it's it's something else because its genes have been changed due to the radiation and it also leaks off the radiation poisoning so all of those elements that you get to see in Godzilla are present more or less in the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I think that there's, we'll get into some of the stuff that Honda does that maybe distinguishes Godzilla. But I think the Harryhausen special effects, definitely, if you're just talking about the technique, the Retosaurus is much more mobile and sleek than Godzilla. And funny, quick story, when I was a kid, my dad turned this on, on like it was on the mid afternoon matinee and uh he knew of the monsters and stuff but i don't think he'd watched them excessively growing up so he's like look look uh, this is godzilla and so he introduced he tells me the entire backstory of godzilla which was 100 correct but the movie in front of me was beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms so years later i finally saw a godzilla movie i was like and it was one of the later 70s ones and i was like oh well that's very different but i think this movie it's pretty straightforward but I think, and it was directed by Eugene Laurie, who found a way to make the same movie essentially three times. <laughs> He's the director of this film. He's a director of another, of a British film called The Giant Behemoth with another irradiated dinosaur. And then he directs Gorgo, which is a, a British film that also deals with giant dinosaur. So he kind of makes the same movie three times. I think he did it best <laughs> the first time out. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head without... Um... The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Did I get that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And King Kong. I mean, there is no Godzilla. We always like to think of the monster movies from originating from Japan. But really, I mean, there were a ton of American monster movies going on around the same time that the kaiju movies were breaking out. And you could argue, you know, they would have never existed without the American films. And possibly without Bray Bradbury. So he has a connection here. So Harry House and Bradbury are friends. One of the best scenes in this movie involves the Rheasaurus coming up out of the water and attacking a lighthouse. And have you ever read a story called The Foghorn? I haven't, no. Trey, so this, maybe it was in The New Yorker, I can't remember where it appeared, but it was published somewhere. And the filmmakers that were getting Harryhausen to work on this Real, saw that Ray Bradbury written a short story. And that short story, the foghorn, the concept is that there are these two, uh, there's an older lighthouse keeper and he's teaching the younger lighthouse keeper. And he's telling them all the rules of the lighthouse. And then he points out that, hey, you know what? Once a year, when the foghorn goes out from the lighthouse, something else comes back. So there's this giant creature out there that hears this noise and thinks it's the mating call or the call of one more of its kind that are out there. And every year it comes to the lighthouse and it realizes that, nope, that's too bad. And has to wander <laughs> back off into the deep alone. And from that sprang everything that becomes Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I mean, I'm looking at the monster right here and I think he looks pretty cool. And I haven't seen this movie, but it's definitely one I will see. And especially if we move into like a, 
you know, an American giant monster film, which I, or episodes on those, which I'm sure I will do at some point. Yeah, I, I think this one also, if you look at this template and you see the um, the Clover, Matt Reeves Cloverfield film, mm-hmm. they actually are nice bookends because I think Clo- I think Matt Reeves was a fan of this film and you can see some of that in Cloverfield. No, that makes sense. Makes complete sense. All right, let's move on to number 13, and we have Mechagodzilla. So Mechagodzilla, I don't know what it really is about Mechagodzilla, Nathan. I feel like I've always had, I don't know, I've always been drawn to Mechagodzilla, but when I look at the design of Mechagodzilla, I'm not like, (laughs) I'm not blown away by it. I don't know if it's just I like the movies that Mechagodzilla's in or the concept of that thing, but I mean, first introduced in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla in 74. And we get all sorts of it. I mean, at first, Mechagodzilla comes out and is just the... Well, first, he's pretending to be Godzilla, which I think is hilarious. That He's just going around and people are like, oh, Godzilla's destroying things. And, you know, one of my favorite scenes involving Mechagodzilla is when Anguirus is, senses something wrong and, you know, it's not Godzilla and he's basically throwing himself at this thing to prove that it's not Godzilla. And I love that, um, that aspect, but I don't know if it's always Mechagodzilla that's attracting me, but yeah, at first we, in the first couple movies, Mechagodzilla is just Mechagodzilla. There's no real explanation for Mechagodzilla. And then you get in later and they try to explain him away. And at one point they're taking like the original Godzilla's bones and turning it into the Mechagodzilla and it gets real weird, but what are your uh, thoughts on Mechagodzilla? Well, it's completely goofy, but that fits in perfectly with all the kaiju stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I love, you know, I do like his presence in the, if correct me if I'm wrong, but in the 74 film, it's like you said, like, he looks like God, he looks like Godzilla on the outside. So it's like underneath is the Mechagodzilla. Yes. Which, which yes. kind of doesn't make sense. Like, no. you don't need him. <laughs> at that point, you should just be the structure, the musculature. You don't really, you shouldn't just be an entire robotic Godzilla wearing another Godzilla skin. So I always thought that, even as a kid, it was weird. I did like that he had, you know, missile fingers and stuff. I mean, he's just basically like something from a Saturday morning cartoon, which is probably true of every movie from that time period. I think I've said my first my first actual exposure to Godzilla <laughs> via the fake Godzilla that was a Rhinosaurus, but after that was Godzilla versus Megalon. And that, of course, is Jet Jaguar, and it, it, who's a, a, a metal robot. I think all these creatures are in the vein of Ultraman, right? So yeah, an Ultraman. Yep. I when I was making my list, I kind of left off the heroic robots because well, they're not exactly kaiju. God, Mechagodzilla definitely counts. Here's what I Mechagodzilla isn't necessarily one of my all-time favorites. I, he, he's a little goofy. He's fun. I think he always needs, and you notice this is true of every movie he's in, that he's never the uh he may be the only heavy, but he's never the only character. Like he's you know, he, he can't quite carry the entire movie. Like if you look at even his original one, uh, he's the only villain, if I mm-hmm. remember correctly. Yep. But uh, they have to bring in King Caesar, you know, uh, as, a, as another interest story with an interesting side bit to it. Uh, we're going to talk about another monster that shows up in, in the sequel, The Terror, Mechagodzilla. Here's what I do like. I do like that his purpose changes with almost every movie iteration, which I like, which isn't necessarily true. Most of the other monsters are the monsters, right? You know, yeah, yep. Mothra is almost always the heroic character and they, they kind of stay in their lanes. Uh, sometimes you'll have Rodan will be destructive and maybe he'll be on the, on the team. 
same way, I think Ghidorah had a one Dolly and so with the good side, but for the most part, he's always the villain. Mechagodzilla, though, not just in in which allegiance it has, but in how it's portrayed. So it's definitely like a machine of destruction in most of this. And I think it's true of the Showa ones as well, right? That he's kind of like, it, it's definitely like an automated monster, but it's much more of like a mech when you get to the later, like, uh, yeah. Godzilla films from the 2000s. The I really liked that approach where it's used to counter Godzilla. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much how he is exclusively used in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. And you're right, you're right. Yeah, again, the show era is where the Tokyo SOS. Yeah. yeah, so the yeah the show era, it's pretty much, I think even in Terror Mechagodzilla, he might be even being repaired by humans. So I think yeah. in that, when he's first announced, like, there's nothing there. We don't know anything about where this monster came from, why he's dressing up as Godzilla. But yes, you're absolutely right. They try to use it for their own purposes to defeat Godzilla. And I think that's one of my favorite threads in uh, Tokyo SOS is, you know, Mothra and the Shobajin are trying to convince them not to use Mechagodzilla anymore. And he's dangerous and Mothra will protect them and they just don't want to let go. So, and I really liked that Mechagodzilla design. I, I think the Showa yeah. era and that those were really good. Not Showa, excuse me, the Heisei era yep. ones were really good design-wise. I like most of the Mecha Godzilla designs, with the exception of the one that showed up in Kong versus Godzilla. Um, yeah, I, just, I don't like that one. I liked the idea of having Mecha Godzilla there. I even didn't mind the storyline about why Mecha Godzilla was doing what it was doing, and kind of having this idea that there's another monster still sort of involved. You know, I thought yeah. all that was pretty cool, uh, and it wasn't the worst thing. It was just that, like you know. I can't imagine having that design like that, like a, a figure of that sitting on my shelf. And, you know, I've got Kong and Godzilla from that film here, but I don't have the Mecha Godzilla. It's just kind of lanky and weird looking. Yeah, no, it's not for me. But yeah, I mean, well, he was first designed because of the Mecha craze in Japan, right? You had things like you had uh, Gundam and you had. Yeah. Oh, why am I blanking? All the things that made up Robotech, like Mazinger, Mazinger Z and all those. Which um, was my favorite show as a kid. It came over here as Transor Z in the 80s. And I watched it like religiously. Like Voltron, of course, was very popular here in the States. Uh, and at the time that this was like the 70s, you had like Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. And again, we've referenced Ultraman already. But there was a King Kong Escapes film where they tried the same thing and they had Mecha Kong that was designed... Yeah, like he could he could rip diamonds out of the earth or something. I don't know. <laughs> seems seems like a yeah, good I use mean, of a giant robot ape. But yeah, that was a, I mean that was just a big thing in Japan. It was like and obviously a lot most of those things I mentioned are afterwards. But it was I mean it dominated Japan for a couple of decades. So, but anything else on Mechagodzilla before we move on? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, he's a very durable monster. I, I get why people like him. I to me, yeah, he's. Um, He's a pretender, <laughs> literally. <laughs> All right. You want to get us to our number 12? Sure, sure. I, yep. This is, for me, we've definitely, you know, we're, we've got a lot of the Japanese films related specifically to Honda's series that took off with Godzilla. And I do like how a lot of them are, are interrelated. But I think on the list, this is maybe one of the weirdest monsters in sort of the history of kaiju in general. I think that, you know, we've talked about how 
towards the end of this, we're probably going to talk about a couple of the creatures that we find are kind of off the wall that don't quite, you know, they didn't quite make the list, but probably deserve mention because they're just that weird. Well, I think this is one of them. And I, I, I know I'm bigger on this one than, than you are, Trey, but this is, uh, this is from that same period of time that gave us Mecha Godzilla, that 70s era Godzilla, where everything was a little sillier, was mostly sort of aimed at kids. And this is right sort of the transition period. So you get a movie that's a little bit darker, actually, and but still has some goofiness. It's Godzilla versus Hedora, which, which I saw as a child as Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Mm-hmm. And uh, this Hedora is the monster we're talking about here. Really a weird looking design. Like he's not right off the bat as striking as you would expect a kaiju to be, you know, where we can clearly know what we're looking at. He's a big ball of snot and sludge and corrosive sulfuric acid. Yeah, he's he's a toxic waste sort of that's amalgamized and has been personified. And so he's got weird tendrils. He kind of looks like someone sneezed on Cthulhu, right? Like it's like, (laughs) he's like all this sludge, but you can kind of see some weird features. The eyes are turned at a weird angle. I mean, it's, I guess the, the benefit of making this guy in a suit is that he doesn't even need to be symmetrical, right? Like Godzilla's face looks all bashed up half the time in these seventies movies, but this thing is like, whatever. I mean, he looks like he stumbled off the, like the set of one of the Star Trek, uh, original series monsters like he's just like a lot of stuff stuffed together but i love the concept here which is that uh in fact i would argue that godzilla vs. Vs. hodora that hodora himself is maybe the closest in this series of films to this point the show of films he's the closest spiritual cousin that godzilla himself actually has right in terms of what he represents he's a monster that's birthed out of a very specific evil that itself was created by humans and humans are a hundred percent responsible for his creation and uh now granted godzilla is a dinosaur that was at the bottom of the ocean chilling but you know without the bomb godzilla doesn't exist without human beings interfering in things godzilla will not be it's not true some of the other monsters were aliens sent them or they were always there chilling on monster island hedora's pollution personified and it's this is one of the few movies too, just like the original Godzilla. We get to see the fallout of what, how horrible it is to be killed by this thing, right? Like we see people mm-hmm. dying the way we saw people poisoned by radiation poisoning in Godzilla. And I love that there's different elements to Hedorah. So like we see him break apart. He's got a flying element and there are a lot of different pieces. He's not the, he, he's not a great looker, you know, to look at him. I actually have <laughs> one of the figures here. He's sort of hanging off the edge. But, I mean, he looks like he could have been a, you know, a ball of slime that you sort of tucked together. But his battle with Godzilla is sort of harrowing. Like, he's a real menace to Godzilla. He's, he's a difficult adversary sort of because of where he comes from. He's pollution. He's all-consuming. And uh, the, the movie he's in is just super weird and very eccentric. And I like the monster for that reason. He's very eccentric. He's a memorable creature. When I saw him, he's, he's a little scary, too. A little, there's some, a little bit more horror in this film than any of the other, like, kid-friendly Godzillas. Yeah, I do not care for the movie <laughs> as it is. But that doesn't mean I don't like Hedera. The, I mean, the things I don't like about the movie are some of the weirder elements and that it gets kind of goofy. But the thing about Hedera is I do like the eyes. I like the eye design. And I love that Hedera does like produce this smog that kind of just makes people just fall over poisoned. And that is really cool. And I really like when Hedera flies. 
So I don't really have as much as a big problem. It's like you said, sometimes Hetero just looks like a big giant like blob of, <laughs> of nothing, of toxic waste. But I really do like aspects about Hetero the monster and the design of Hetero and that. So even though it wouldn't make my list, I don't really have any gripes against the monster itself. I mean, I don't really care much for Godzilla versus Megalon, but I don't mind Megalon a whole lot. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I, it's very easy to win me over with any of these monsters, but yeah. Very cool. For number 11, we have Barugon. So B-A-R-U-G-O-N. Not to be confused with Barragon. And Barugon is from Gamera versus Barragon. And this was that original trilogy of what I think were the more serious Gamera films before they kind of got goofy and off the wall. <laughs> and <laughs> right before they got too silly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in this one, you've got a monster that shoots a rainbow ray out of its back, but uh, they get much more silly. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know if it's the silliness or if it's more like they're just targeted towards small children as I think what happens, the series moves on. But this one is the origin of Baragon is really cool because he's out on this, in this cave or something, they're looking for treasure and they think it's an, and some kind of gem or something that's going to get them all this money. And they bring it back with them and the thing hatches and it's this giant monster. And he has ice breath, which has already been established as Gamera's weakness since he breathes fire, obviously. (laughs) And then, you know, this thing just goes. And at one point his back glows up and then a rainbow death ray comes out of his back and starts blowing stuff up. So, I think that's I do like the design of Baragon, too. He's kind of got like a horn on the front and it's nothing like too revolutionary, but I really just like the simpleness and the powers that he has. So I don't know if you've seen this one in a while, Nathan, or what your thoughts are. I have. And I like so I I think that the Gamera films, the original Gamera series, again, the Showa era Gamera's, they are. Very, very silly. They are 100 percent kids films and when i say that i mean they are they have been made for kids they may have been made by kids like which (laughs) not really (laughs) but to take my point like this is why i like the the barogon that we're talking about here you everything you just described about him he has ice breath he hatches out of a he's a gem supposed to be a gem but then oh well it's an egg and he hatches out of it and he shoots a rainbow out of his back now tell me that doesn't sound like a third grade teacher walks up, hands out a bunch of pieces of paper <laughs> and asks the kids, says, we're going to have a contest, design the best monster. When I was a kid, the Maryland Science Center did this. They had some future exhibit of monsters and they were like, design your creature. I don't think I had something that had a rainbow shoot about its back, but I, I need to show this one to my daughter because I'm pretty sure she would make a creature just like this. That's, that's what is so fun about this era of gods of gamma creatures. They're even more disconnected from reality like there's no good reason for him to shoot a rainbow out of his back like what what's the purpose like what does it accomplish what does it do no it has a purpose in the film but yeah he's ridiculous i kind of love him for being ridiculous i will say though that he is i know he's not really supposed to be related but he is definitely like the wish version of baragon from godzilla (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know the funny thing is there's a there's a couple things you said there is one that when they did this movie after the success of the first one, they were like, okay, we're going to get an A-list director and we're going to make this one more serious. So this, this is the results of when Gamera gets serious. And, uh, well, I mean, I think we'll see that later on. But 
the other thing is, yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think the Gamera designs may not be better. They're certainly not better from a technical standpoint, but I think the designs of their creatures are so much more imaginative and they've, they're so much more, like you said, it's almost like you've got a giant child designing these things that they're so off the wall and cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple others. I don't know if they make our list, but there are a couple others where you're like, it's such a simple, ridiculous idea, but the, the I know that they, they aren't on the list, but like the, the primary gamma villains, uh, and that prime that mostly happens because of the the later series of camera films, the ones that are made, you know, in mm-hmm. the nineties. That we get the the Gauss, you know, the the giant who are very much like Rodan, right? Like the yep. kind of giant flying pterodactylish chicken creatures. Those are always sort of seen as his his primary nemesis. And the movie that they're in is probably a little bit better than some of these other films of, of the, the Gamera series. But I like his other, I'd like his other more colorful characters like Baragon. Yep, absolutely. Sticking on Gamera, do you want to give our number 10? Yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't realize uh, that we were there for this one. But yeah, so Godzilla, and excuse me, uh, our number 10 is Iris from Gamera Three is it the the raw? Uh, let me get this right. Hold the revenge of the Iris. Revenge of Iris. It's yeah. It, I re, it's a called a couple different things. I think in other places, but yeah. Gamma three. Revenge of Iris was made in nineteen ninety nine, and this was the end. It was um, Shisuke Kaneko's final piece of a trilogy that he had done, starting in like nineteen ninety five. Gamma Guardian of the Universe. Then you had Gamma versus Legion, and then you had Gamma three. Revenge of Iris, and those three movies really did to the extent that any kaiju series could form a, a cohesive story. It formed a cohesive storyline. And I think that the, they made Gamera, the design was amazing and they made the character very compelling to a degree, I guess as compelling as a giant monster could be. And uh, particularly when Godzilla became good, he lost really all of his attributes, except Godzilla was going to protect us. And so they really doubled down on the protector element of Gamera. So I say all that because by the time you get to part three, the idea is we have to close the series out. And we've had these interesting monsters. We brought the Gauss back. Then we created uh, Legion, which is this different kind of monster altogether. And those were interesting concepts. But three required them to make a monster that was going to have as much personality as Gamera did. And I think in the process of doing that, they end up making, in my opinion, one of the best kaijus out there, particularly from a quote-unquote villain perspective. So Iris is a is a creature that is, ha- I, I, like, it's a little hazy for me exactly, <laughs> Trey, on how this happens. But I, there's an egg, right, that's sort of left behind, presumably from the Gauss, right? But it is not a, what hatches from it is not a Gauss. It's this tentacly a strange creature. It has it's a couple of angular features that sort of are similar to the, the, the Gauss creatures, but it, in, in a lot of ways, it just looks completely different. And it's dis- it is essentially left. There are no more creatures near it. It's sort of left alone. And it is discovered by a young girl who's also been orphaned. Her parents are killed in a, in a building collapse that seemingly happens because of Gamera. Gamera is fighting the Gauss in the city. Think of Batman mm-hmm. versus Superman, right? So now this, <laughs> now we've got a beef because we watched Gamera in the process of trying Please to don't. save us. <laughs> this is legit. This one works. The Gamera is seen as by this young girl 
as the reason her parents are dead. And so she has a, a, a desire for revenge. And now she also has a potential weapon of revenge in the form of Iris. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen here. When Iris starts to grow larger and become a more formidable monster, uh, most of the plot is still dealing with, well, can we trust Gamera or not, as it is destroying things in the wake of its battles with the Gauss. But then as Iris comes into the picture, and you have these great long flowing tentacles, and almost Lovecraftian, I think would be a a reasonable way to describe the way that it looks. And it starts to create, it has this symbiotic relationship with this girl that starts out like a young two orphaned creatures sort of trying to protect one another, but as it, it becomes more symbiotic and more sinister as it goes along. And so what you have is a character that looks great, has a, has a, has a real backstory, has this sort of connective issue that even adds a little bit of poignancy because at some point this girl is now basically tied to the iris in such a way that if you destroy iris you may destroy the girl as well so uh most giant monsters wouldn't care about that but gamma you know he's he's for everybody <laughs> he's here to save us he's here to save us from our sins i think they the heavy metal song at the end of the first film says that like in explicit lyrics <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no I'm, I'm glad you did that little recap because it has been so long since i've seen these movies that i think that's the reason why nothing from that series made it onto my list. It's just been so long and I was trying to remember, okay, I know what Iris looks like and I do like the design of Iris, but it's like, okay, what was Iris? And you just reminded me of it. And yeah, that is, I think when I first watched that, that might've been my favorite of the, the three films and it's mine for sure. Yeah. It's because you have the, you have a chill, like a, you said, a child here front and center, but it's kind of not in the standard what we're used to seeing from Gamera movies. And I, yeah, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch those for sure. Um, I've been holding off on those, but I don't disagree with having Iris here. It's just Iris was not on my list because I haven't seen that movie in a while. Um, and fun, fun fact here. I don't know. I haven't made my way all the way through the Arrow box sets when they, they released some really cool like sets for Gamera. But I know that on the old DVD I used to have of Gamera Revenge Virus, they had a very funny commentary that uh, they had basically done so that you had as this person doing a very snooty British actor voice was the voice of Gamera. <laughs> and uh, then you had this person doing, I'm not sure why, but it sounded like a young impoverished Russian girl doing the voice of Iris <laughs> and saying things like that are not much work for tentacled actress That's and hilarious. things like that. And then you had a guy who was just like this sort of like uh, he had a sort of Southern accent and he was soldier number six. And he's like, I, I don't, I can't imagine I work with Rodan. He's not very personable, you know, stuff like that. So, well, um, Nathan, if you've, yeah, the, the dubbed version, I, so I have not watched the arrow set yet, but I know on the mill Creek set, the, dubbed versions were some of the worst things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> they must have realized that because they, this commentary was again, like I said, from the perspective of these are the monster actors. And you know, so Gamera's like, my motivation here was to <laughs> No, I specifically remember a bad Southern accent on one of the actors in one of those movies. I think they took and that <laughs> and then bore it forward and said, they recognize it like, okay, let's just put this in the commentary. So, kind of amusing at least it was amusing to me like yeah that 10 or 12 years ago when i saw it. i would enjoy that <laughs> at number nine we have baragon and i think we're starting to get into the ones where we both had on our top tens at least and baragon is introduced in frankenstein conquers the world or 
if you want to be boring, you know, Frankenstein versus Baragon. And then would only appear again in Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. I think that is the title. Is that right? Does Baragon show up in Destroy All Monsters? Not Destroy All Monsters. Nope. Okay. Nope. Varen is there and Manda is there. But I'm no. probably thinking of Anguirus. That Anguirus shows Anguirus up. Anguirus is definitely yeah. there. But for some reason, whatever reason, Baragon's not there. But Baragon's this has such a cool introduction, I think, in Frankenstein Conquers the World because they just think that it's Frankenstein doing all this stuff. And really, it's Baragon who's burrowing out up to the ground and destroying these towns and villages and murdering people left and right. And then again, I mean, my definite favorite moment of Baragon's is in GMK and that fight that he has with Godzilla near, I think it's like an energy plant of some kind is, I think it's one for the ages. It's one of my favorite kaiju fights that I've ever seen. And I do, I like the design of Baragon. I think he's weird enough that, you know, you won't forget him. And again, that fight was just great for me. So I don't, I don't know what you have to say about Baragon, Nathan. Well, it's very simple. Yeah. I love the simplicity of Baragon. I'm a big fan of this too. So what I love is sitting here talking about this. I guess you're right. And I just don't think I ever realized that he's essentially only in two movies and the great golf, because I watched most of the Kaiju films, right. Uh, when I was younger, of course, like GMK didn't come out till 2001. And I remember renting that. And then like, Oh, this is Baragon. I remember Baragon. Baragon is very memorable in Frankenstein conquers the world. It was just such an oddball film in and of itself. But I think it's what makes that movie work because otherwise you just have this very weird oddball version of Frankenstein, which we get into, we'd just be talking about it forever because of how strange it is. But then in the same film, you just have this dinosaur, right? It's a burrowing subterranean dinosaur that pops up. There's something about the suit out of suitmation, the right word here, that <laughs> something about the suit. Yeah, that is the right word. In the, in, yeah, there's something about the suit performance in this film that when I was a kid, I remember, I, I still to this day remember it was like the first time I'd ever gone to the dentist. And that was kind of a, a weird experience. So I'd come back and then this movie was on television. And I, I did, first I was like, I don't think I'm going to keep watching this because you just had the kind of Frankenstein character who doesn't look like Frankenstein, kind of looks like a giant caveman. And I wasn't even sure what I was watching. And then I think there's a sequence where the, everyone's at like a 60s dance party, right? And Baragon is suddenly like there, like outside the building and he's attacking the way it's moving and the way it is shot. It's actually creepy. Like it, it, as a kid, it was anyway, that the movements and the way it was sort of it, it, it was a dinosaur, but it wasn't moving like a dinosaur. It was almost a little nightmarish. Like I, I distinctly remember having sort of bad dreams about this later because this idea of just looking out the window and this giant thing, which is sort of like spazzing out, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, like a rat, right? Yeah, yeah. His movements are like rat-like or, or dog-like. Like he's very much at this big, but he, he he spasms and his head moves around. And that was the same thing with the Harryhausen films that always sort of freaked me out as a kid is they moved in stuttery little jerks. Now we know that they moved that way because that's how the animators had to make them. But in my dreams, these things moved the same way, you know, so the suit thing, Baragon's like crazy moving around twitching and things like that. And I just thought it made that creature so creepy. And when they come into him in GMK, he really doesn't have that much screen time. He kind of gets a short shrift really, but I think by far he's the best designed monster in the film. 
and he's a giant puppy dog, really. Like he's very puppy dogish, but he works so well. And he's so memorable in those moments. He's so appealing when he shows up there. I would have loved to see them bring him back with that same suit and do another one. But uh, yeah, for for a creature that you know has had a very minimal amount of screen time, I to me he's one of my favorite uh, kaiju, and he's very simple. He's just a big underground dinosaur, kind of resembles a rat, sometimes resembles a dog. I mean, that's the thing is, uh, and these were kind of related Iris and Baragon because they were both in films directed by uh, Shusuke Kaneko. And I just, I just wish they would have given him, I said this last on the Godzilla episode. I did. I just wish they would have given him more of these because he seemed like he had all these ideas and these great movies he could have designed and he could just think about what he could have done. I mean, he wanted Varen and GMK instead of, I can't remember who the other one was, but instead of uh, Varen or instead of Mothra and King Ghidorah, he wanted Varen and Baragon. And I'm like, I got to respect that guy. Yeah. Although I think the problem, I, I think it was smart to, to nix Varen because he's so similar really to Baragon in a sense. He's very kind of, uh, yeah. I like Baragon better, but I think Varen is another sort of, it's kind of just a dinosaur, right? Or a dinosaur yeah. creature. And he doesn't have a lot of, it's a fun movie, but it's not really one of the upper tier. You know, no, but I think uh, I know he can at least jump really high. I don't know if he can fly, but I remember in Destroy All Monsters, yeah. him kind of gliding through the air. And Baragon has a, jumps a lot in GMK, actually, which yeah. is kind of funny looking. You know? So maybe, it, yeah, yeah, it might have been a, a fusion there, but yeah. Okay, I'll take this one again since I think this was only on my list, and then we'll bounce back to you, Nathan. But at number eight, we have Giran. And. Giran is speaking of like the weird gamma designs. This is, you know, let's take this monster and let's put a knife on his head and let's put a shuriken in that knife and let him shoot that out at his enemies. And the introduction we get to Giran, who is only in, well, I don't want to say only because he's probably in that mess of uh, Gamera super monster from 1980. But Giran is in Gamera versus Giran. And our introduction to him is... Gauss is on this alien planet, comes down to fight Giron. Giron beats him and then starts chopping him into pieces. <laughs> and it is so absurd. And it's so I think he smells the pieces at one time and like acts like it's very like <laughs> disgusting to smell. And I, I just really love the design of Giron. I don't necessarily love the movie he's in, but I do like elements of it. And I just love the way that he fights. So that's always been my thing with Giron is just this cool off the wall design. And I do like the battles that he takes place in, in that movie. Yeah. And I think the thing about this, when I saw these movies as a kid, the, these couple gamma movies, and there's another giant monster who's very much like a squid, I think who spears gamma at one point, they, that you realize that maybe even more so than the Godzilla films from the same era is, they real these things can really cause some damage. Like you get some blood spraying out of Gamera quite frequently when he comes up against some of these monsters. And uh Gairon particularly, he's like chopping him and there's blood, if I remember correctly. Am I wrong? Like there's yeah. like red giallo blood flying everywhere, yeah. and mm -hmm. Gamera is shrieking and he's getting like sliced up. And like there's a couple moments there's a little kid you're like uh, are we gonna have like Gamera cutlets? Is he gonna like, survive this? I mean, it's a <laughs> it's a pretty formidable monster 
Yeah, absolutely. And I just had to include him higher up on my list because I do love the violence aspect that you were talking about. And I just love the design. So I actually I have to let me, let me interject here, too. I'm actually really happy because I don't think you had watched these older Gamera films when you were originally talking about this. And I was like, oh, you should, you know, you should get this set, too. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm probably setting him up for fail. Like, he's going to hate these movies. And I'm so, no, I'm so no. happy that you actually enjoyed. Like, I think take them for what they are and they are really fun like monsters like they're fun no honestly i really like the first three with gauss and baragon and gamera by himself and then i like certain aspects that are just ridiculous in the gear movie i love some of the stuff in um viros or virus or however you pronounce it that are more goofy in there the only one i didn't really like is when you get into like jiger and um zigra and that stuff but no, I was very pleasantly surprised when I watched these because I was like, I've seen the the Heisei trilogy and I'm never going to like these ones after seeing it, but I did. So, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I did. I did pick up that set. So that was that was a good pickup. All right. Do you want to I think from this point on, I think we've got ones that we both agree are. Yeah. You know, we both really like. So you do want to pick up with number seven? Sure. So number seven, and I think here's where we've got something that's um not unlike the Rhesaurus, although Rhesaurus in a way still connected to Godzilla. So we really have had had too many creatures that aren't really outside of that main strain. Where yes, Gamera is not Toho, but is Dai doing something very similar to Toho and in the same basic vein and so i think here even though we're still kaiju we're still japanese we finally have a monster that's probably essentially different from the others that we've talked about thus far and really only has some similarities to one godzilla creature i can think of that isn't on this list and this is dai majin from 1966 is just you know giant monster giant protector and it's a it's a stone statue at the start of the film that sort of uh, right on the outskirts or the edge of this small uh, village. And you've got a very, very familiar plot. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that the director here has made very, very many films in the same vein. And it's a style of film uh, that involves, you've got the small town where you've got an evil warlord takes over, right? One of his men or one of these men kill the, I guess the Shogun who's in charge of the village. And then one of these men takes over, becomes the warlord who's just sort of reigning terror over everybody, all the residents of the town, of the village. And so they, in in their sort of pleas, they end up bringing this giant stone warrior to life who's going to be there to combat the warlord, to essentially kind of come in, restore peace, restore justice, and drive out this uh this evil man and his minions and of course in the process of this give and take battle you're going to have the stone man fighting uh whatever these guys can throw at him i mean they're going to look they figure out pretty quickly that their swords aren't going to do anything and i love this movie uh and the character that's in it let's talk about the fact um the director is kimiyoshi yasuda and he had done several zadoichi movies the blind samurai which follow a very similar pathway, right? That the the character comes into a town where people are being oppressed and he's a sort of 
force of nature that's going to walk through the film. And even though he's the main character, a lot of times it's everybody else is revolving around him. That's even more so true when your character is a giant statue that doesn't really speak, right? You know, kind of growls menacingly, but for the most part isn't isn't that vocal. And Yasuda used the same basic premise when he does the yokai monster movies later, which are smaller versions, but are much in common, I think, with Damajin, who is this sort of uh, elemental spirit. And you see that that this isn't this isn't necessarily nature coming in and taking back the power to the people, if you will, but it's the the ancestral spirits. You know, it's sort of the the heart and soul of Japan step, stepping up and stopping these cruel men from sort of inflicting their will. So I love the movie. I love the design. I like the way there's three of these Damajin movies. I think that this one is arguably the best because they're all sort of in the same, in the same wavelength. But I love the different ways in which the human attackers try to find ways to destroy him. Right. So we're going to pull out cannons. We're going to pull out, you know, traps. He's not the same towering size that say Godzilla's, or some of those monsters are. He can't be that big. He need to be a little more, more intimate. There has to be at least a thought that maybe this army can destroy him. But I think this is an excellent movie and an excellent monster because he's he, he is really he's the wandering samurai sort of character on a huge on a on a massive scale, right? Yeah, and I love the design of Daimajin and I, I think I go back and forth. I think I like the third one the best. The second one's pretty much rinse and repeat for me. What you're going to get with these is you're going to get about 10 minutes of Daimajin in the film <laughs> is what you're going to get. And you're absolutely right. These are basically samurai movies with a kaiju thrown in. And it's I think it's incredible that all three of these are as good as they are, given that they were made in the same year, obviously by different directors and I'm sure different crew and stuff, but I, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> but the thing I love, and I think in the third one, he's even treated as like at the beginning, you see like, oh, he is maybe kind of a force of nature because he comes along with these storms and everything else, kind of like a um, like a Jason Voorhees or something. But yeah, he's definitely elemental. He has powers, but you get the idea that these emanate from the spiritual world and affect the natural world. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because he's a... I mean, what is he? He's a spirit inside of a giant stone statue that comes in. And when I mean, the thing that it allows it to do is it makes since he's only in the film for so long, when Daimajin shows up, I think it's so memorable and it's it allows him to do maximum carnage and kind of stick in your brain. And I think that's kind of the best part of these movies is when he's on these just unstoppable rampages against the villains who you've been waiting the whole time to get their comeuppance. So. I think that's what works here is in the, the in the worlds of the Toho Godzilla films, in the worlds of the Gamera, Gamera is so silly, right? And, and so is Godzilla. I mean, as Roger Ebert once pointed out, Gamera is powered by farts, right? Like you think about it. And so <laughs> like all these things are silly. So they have to exist in a world that even it looks like our real world, particularly the, the films in the 70s, created an entire universe that could hold a Godzilla or a Gamera. The cool thing about Damagen is like his world as we've said, is mostly a somewhat realistic samurai action story, right? And then Mm -hmm. what makes him so effective is he's the only outsized element. You know, he comes into it, and when he's there, 
he upends everything because it's like the movie is built to contain him for sure, but he's this element that is very specifically supposed to be larger in life. And so it's so dramatic that you don't really need or even want more of him than what's there. I think he said it very well. And I like, I, I don't know. I just really like these movies and the suit effects. The effects are really good in these. movies. Oh, it's really good. Some it's of the really best, good. I think of, of, of this era Kaju in terms of trying to make this look like a statue come to life and not like just some guy who's like rock skirts about to fall down. No, and that's the thing. It's like the the actor who did this thing had to keep his eyes open for like the entire the entire takes. And I think it's really effective that you just see these eyes. I mean, that's the only thing they left from him were his real eyes in this. And I think that helps. It's spooky, create. actually. It's yeah, really spooky. yeah. Like you're glad that Damajin is on on our side, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, that's. That's an excellent one, and I think maybe a little bit of a lesser known one compared to some of these others. And I highly recommend the Arrow box set of these. It's absolutely worth it. So if you're a, a kaiju fan, I would say that that Arrow Damage and box set with the three films is absolutely worth it. They're all good movies. Yep. Agreed. Moving on to number six is one that I think I came up on the movie and the monster, which not that I was low on it before, um, but it came up even a little bit higher on in this last watch. And that is Biolante. And Biolante is this, this is when things get really weird in the Godzilla universe. You start getting psychics coming in and you start getting, you know, this plants grown from you know, this. The scientist puts his daughter cells in a plant and then he puts these Godzilla cells in a plant. And it, what the result of that is, is something that's, just this giant, great looking plant monster with. I mean, you can describe what this thing looks like, Nathan, because I think you had a you or your son. One of you had a pretty good description of it. But I don't remember we said I, to me, it's like it looks like a T-Rex crossed with Audrey, too. That's like, yeah. yeah, it's exactly yeah. kind of what it is. But it's it's an amazing design, right? Mm hmm. Um, here's what. So what I love about this, I think it's it's safe to say, Trey, is that. This Godzilla story in the show era had essentially come to an end, right? And Godzilla's done. Godzilla's sort of a thing of the past. Of course, you know, monsters, they never stay down. And so in the 80s, they bring them back. And in a film that, well, the way I saw it was presented in the U.S. was Godzilla 1985. And for me, who had watched all those cheesy Godzillas in the I uh, was see seeing them in the 80s, probably around the, you know, not that many years before Godzilla 1985 was made. It was really made in 84. It was Return of Godzilla, I think, right, uh, in Japan. When the film comes out, like, you're suddenly watching. Now, we're not talking, like, state-of-the-art Star Wars special effects. We're talking about pretty solid Japanese budget effects for a film now applied to a Godzilla movie. So suddenly I'm watching Godzilla create all this destruction in a style similar to the original Godzilla. Where he's the only thing on screen and there, there, there are sort of like spaceships fighting him and the military's fighting him, but it's on a different scale, right? Like it looks different than it had ever looked before. And it's moving towards that point in the Gamera films where you get to see these people watching the giant monsters. And so the question is, well, who's he going to fight off the bat? Like you got, eventually you're going to have to do the new versions of all your old monsters. But I think right. there, there's not a, a series instantly set up. So you just got Godzilla. He does his thing and it's essentially a remake of the original Go Gojira film. And so when 
after that, we got in the original, we had Godzilla raids again, and we got Anguirus, and so he's the first monster. I like here that they what they choose to do is something that can't be contained in a suit, right? Like it's mm-hmm. such so not a suit monster. It is again, I'd say Lovecraftian. It's got vines and tentacles and things going on with it. It's got its own poignant story that incorporates elements that go back to a lot of different things. I really, I think that it's sort of an homage to the terror of Mechagodzilla that involves a monster that is sort of a scientist daughter is involved there as well in a slightly different mm-hmm. way. But I think it also makes a monster that's very formidable for Godzilla in the same way that Hedorah was. It's hard to put a handle on it. Like we know, we know that Godzilla can spin kick, you know, uh, <laughs> a Megalon <laughs> or, or can slide on his tail well, how does he fight something like this that's so expansive that like come has seemingly has all the powers of nature at its disposal? It is sometimes it's like a giant rose and it's like uh, it's very existential in some points. Yeah, it's one of my absolute favorite Godzilla monsters. I think not just in the way it looks, but that it defies all the other standards. It requires them to do something that's going to be completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And we I think we have to say this because it hasn't been said in this episode, but the Heisei era Godzilla, he's no longer the hero. He's no longer the good guy. I mean, it's so bad that you alluded to earlier that maybe even King Ghidorah is becoming a good guy. Godzilla is in his angry teenage. I'm going to break everything in my room phase in this Heisei films. Right. When he saves you, it's always incidentally, and he'll make sure to break stuff to remind (laughs) you that it was. Yeah. So when Biolante's here, it's not all, it's almost not like Biolante's the bad monster in this. It's almost like they're both kind of neutral. They're just having their fight and no one's really trying to protect anyone, even though we do get kind of vibes of like, you know, this daughter's cells are in this plant monster and there's some weird stuff that goes on with that. But Biolante as a monster is just like you said, so formidable and so cool and something that, yeah, we've seen plant monsters before. That's the thing. We've seen a lot of things before these Godzilla films, but I think they do a good job of taking a design and reworking it to fit their needs. Yeah. And a fun, a fun fact that, that maybe, maybe a lot of us know, maybe, you know, Trey, uh, have you seen the, 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 not the original, but have you seen the remake, the, Little Shop of Horrors, the, the filmed version of the musical with Rick Moranis? No, I have not. Okay. And so this the mild spoilers. You can cut this if you want, but no, you're good. The original end of that or the, the end of the film as it is, is that Rick Moranis comes up against the plant and the plant of course reveals itself that it is actually from outer space. And he's been feeding the plant humans. And then suddenly he's, you know, change of heart and we're going to stop the plant. Well, that is the ending uh Test screen audiences didn't like the original ending. The funny part is Frank Oz, uh, who was making the film, they had poured a lot of money, and it is online on YouTube. You can go and check it out. Into making an end of the film where essentially the plants win because because they've tricked humanity into feeding them until they get so big that they're literally kaiju size. And there's this giant, expensive shot. I don't know if it was shot, but it's presented most of the time in black and white because that's the footage that remains of these giant. Audrey's destroying the city, like crawling. They've ripped themselves out of the roots and they're the size of Godzilla and they're tearing through the city and they are very much in the mold of, of Biolante. So pretty neat to check out. Like if you didn't think there was any Kaiju relationship in 
Little Shop of Horrors. There is indeed. You can find that ending on YouTube. And it's it's an um, it's a very amazing uh, case. I think we've seen many times where there's scenes that get cut from a movie, but the amount of money and the amount of effort that went into this for the doll to be dropped is staggering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and th- that description sounds very similar, Nathan. It almost sounds like a uh, certain monster of the <laughs> Korean persuasion that gets fed and fed. And uh, maybe we'll talk about it a little later. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to uh, introduce our number five? Oh yeah, absolutely. So number five and we, and, you know, train and I, we did not that there was any science involved with this, but we did try to sort of determine at one point, uh, what makes a monster? Like how tall are we talking? And we sort of said, you know, finally I was like, well, if it's over 20 feet, it's not, you know, you can be in kaiju dimensions. We obviously know that the kaiju traditionally that we've been talking about are, you know, damages maybe a little smaller, but a lot of these guys are like going you know, in the hundreds of feet tall, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're enormous. And so we have a character here that I think in its, uh, his initial perspective wasn't that big. And then you get the question, well, they have to be Japanese. And this character has been all over the board. He's definitely been, in a ja- in the in the kaiju tradition, even in the Godzilla universe. Now, I will say this: that in his Japanese iterations, I don't know that he would make my list. No, but no. he's got a. Uh, this is, of course, this is King Kong, and King Kong to me is, you know, we talk about the quintessential monsters, and you've got Godzilla and Kong sort of always come up, and I love King Kong. As a kid, it was the first movie I really remember watching. Probably the first movie I remember watching. Like I remember sitting in my dad's uh, lap, very young, and seeing King Kong for the first time, and being so like kind of overwhelmed by it, and just by this uh, his movements, his mannerisms. We get back into the stop motion. I really feel that makes that character so expressive in that initial um, presentation, but not, but you know, not just that Kong. Like that Kong is is my favorite movie. Uh, giant monster movie i think of all time and i think that that is the best king kong film but i think as a character you kong has been pretty durable particularly you know as a kaju he obviously shows up in godzilla versus king kong which uh is not a great film but it's a very fun movie and he looks that that, i'm gonna be honest that that costume looks pretty flea bitten (laughs) in that movie and then when he comes back and he's in the sort of rankin bass one that they 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 make with in, in conjunction with Toho, the Kong, uh, King Kong escapes. He's not a lot better there. He actually looks like a brown version of the Bumble from <laughs> the Rudolph, really, right? Doesn't he kind of? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's still fun. He's still kind of like him. I even enjoyed him in the seventy the seventy six film that uh, the Rick Baker's effects there. I think you get a suit a suit monster. That had that's pretty good, I think, in terms of how it's acted and performed. But it's very much, I think, that is in kaiju tradition. Wouldn't you agree that the '76 Kong, he feels in the kai. You could have that Kong go up against the 1985 Godzilla, and it would make mm-hmm. more sense than what happens in the old Godzilla versus Kong movie. Yeah, yeah, I think. And then, of course, I loved the Peter Jackson film. There, I think Kong is even. You know, he's maybe a little bit more scaled down to be proportionally something we can accept, but. I think what also really qualifies him for this list is the way that Legendary portrays him when they bring him in to the series. Because I honestly, I think that Kong Skull Island is maybe the best Legendary monster movie so far of that series. My yeah, I love Godzilla, but I feel like that might be the most uh, cohesive as a film 
and his introduction. But I love, I know there's a lot of things that are goofy and, and not great about it too, but Kong versus Godzilla. I think everything involving Kong and Godzilla in that film is great. And they build him into a character that works. They they, they give him the heart that belonged to that original, uh, the, the, the Marion Cooper one, right? The, 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 the mm-hmm. one where he has that, that connection with Faye Ray. And then later in a really weird way with Dwan, <laughs> Jessica Lange's character. And then this relationship he has with this young child in Kong versus Godzilla. I think that they've brought that character to this place where there's a lot of interesting things to do with him, even though we've seen this character time and time and time again. And I think I'm really intrigued by that idea that they present that, you know, somewhere in this hollow earth that the Kongs had a kingdom where, where they were, you know, he's like Conan. He finds his throne. (laughs) That might be cheesy for some. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, Nathan, I, I had already made my list and we were (laughs) going to, so King Kong's number five and people are probably pretty upset about that, but I had already made my list. It wasn't five on my list. I'm just saying guys. No, 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 (laughs) no. We already made our list. And I think we decided at one point, ah, we're not going to put King Kong on there. And then I think we changed, changed our minds. And I was like, I'm not moving my list. I'm just going to put him as an honorable mention. He'll make the list. We'll talk about him, whatever. So it's my fault. You can hate me, but yeah, no, I love that in, um, the 2021 uh, Godzilla versus Kong where he's got the underground thing. And I completely forgot about his relationship with the little girl. It's a little girl, right? Yeah. 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 yeah she's okay. she's yeah. the, she's kind of like the last remaining remnant of the, of the Iwis, the, the tribe that you meet that had John C. Riley with them in the yes. film, but due yep. to like erosion and storms and everything that the, all the people have had to relocate. And there's almost nobody on that Island anymore, except Kong who's in like a protective bubble. Yeah. And I loved Skull Island, and you'll be shocked by this, Nathan. I didn't see the original King Kong until a couple years ago. I was first introduced to Peter Jackson's, and then later I'd even seen the 76 before I saw the original. And but, what did you think when you finally saw it? Um, oh, it's it's a masterpiece. It's an excellent yeah. movie. I love it, but uh, I don't think there would have been any doubt that I wouldn't have. I was just curious because it is one, it's always interesting. Because my kids the same way. They watch it, and they're fat. In fact, it's releasing on Blu-ray. The time we're recording is tomorrow and it i think it might have been on blu-ray before but it's been out of print so i'm like really excited to show them the blu-ray version again you know so we've watched it a couple times and like yes even after seeing all the effects work that goes into the jackson films and then the level of detail that has been used on the newer movies there's still something fascinating and special about that 1933 movie and that work that willis o'brien is doing and the 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 um the way the character comes to life. Yep. The most personality of any giant monster, as far as I'm concerned. No, and it's, I mean, I think it's just a timeless classic. I really do. I don't always fare well when I'm going back to some of the 30s films and 40s films and things, but that's definitely one of them that holds up. Let's move on to our number four, which is Ghidorah or King Ghidorah. And Ghidorah was first introduced in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. He's been all over the place, I feel like. But Ghidorah is different in the sense, especially when he debuted as all these other monsters and stuff. And most of these other monsters in the Godzilla films are creatures. They're either dinosaurs or they're natural creatures that have been mutated by radiation. Well, Ghidorah comes from the uh, mythological story of Orochi, the eight-headed dragon, and that's where they kind of get this. But in the films... 
he's almost like the one coming from space earlier on. And that's usually where he shows up from. He's coming out of space. And there's so much you could say about Ghidorah. The design is just incredible. You know, he's flying. He has three heads that are kind of moving independently the way they did the suitmation and everything. And I think it's just a classical monster. And I'm going to let you open up and talk about this one, Nathan. But I think my favorite time of seeing Ghidorah or King Ghidorah is Mecha King Ghidorah in the 1991 film. And that is just such an iconic look. Now, I I don't know if that's my favorite design, but I just love that he comes back and he's this Mecha now and he's just got such a cool look to him as Mecha King Ghidorah. And yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are, Nathan. Yeah, iconic uh, monster, and he looks great. Like just in the like, if you're drawing this thing and saying, "Okay, this is how it's going to appear," and I think that's why he's so great. He he works so well for like the poster covers. You know, I've got a mm-hmm. like a one of the tin uh, like posters sitting up over here, and it's it's from the the Godzilla versus King Ghidorah film from '91. The one that one of my favorite features. posters. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it looks amazing, and uh, the same thing is true for the poster later when they do. Uh, GMK. Although I will say this, that so it's interesting because King Ghidorah as an alien, which is what he's traditionally is in almost every version, except uh, well two, except two. One is the '91 film where the, the the genesis of him sort of happens, or no, he's still an alien, right? Like they plant aliens. In the no, past. they're just from the future. But they're I just from it, the future. There's some weird creature, but yeah. I think they were from the future or something. So they yeah. plant them essentially in the past, and then yep. so eventually these things grow into the future and they become this three headed creature somehow. But I think what's weird about that is of all the creatures that you could have say that they're the alien, you know, it's weird that it's King Ghidorah because he's the one creature that looks most mythologically Japanese, right? Like he fits so well into the tradition of Japanese mythology. So when we get uh, GMK, the Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, all out monsters attack, the plot of that film completely upends like what we've previously known as Ghidorah's like storyline. And in that one, the idea of this protector dragon or this, this mythological ancestral dragon that makes the most sense. Like to me, that's the storyline that fits Ghidorah the best, but I think that's arguably the weakest design. They make, they go with some weird decisions in that and they, they make him look more, almost like he's a carved, like, like he belongs in a parade, right? Like he feels a lot more stylized and a lot of it's CGI. There's something I love about the first time you see him fully doing his thing in King Ghidorah, the three headed monster. Like that movie is very specific in the way it does things because the plot is that I think the first time we see the aliens are in control plot, which they use like seven more times or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like a ton. And even all the way to final wars, they're still doing it. But the, in this movie, there's there's all of this where here's Godzilla and here's Rodan and Mothra and they're in this film and we've seen these monster, monsters before. We're very familiar with them by this point and we get them for most of the movie until we get Ghidorah. And so it's sort of like you're saturated with these other monsters. They're very well known. They're very iconic. They have a lot of weird interactions in this movie, right? It's where they start talking to each other and so there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. So then when you bring a monster out, you're going to have to have something really impressive that's going to sort of knock these guys down a peg, that's going to direct your attention from them to this. And that really works here. When that thing comes out, and I think special effects-wise, again, we were talking about the suit work, that is three heads all moving independently. 
sort of doing their own thing while the thing is still sort of flying along and you get the tail and everything. It's just so, it's so fascinating to watch. Like, even if you don't care anything about giant monsters, it's an image that you can't get out of your head, you know? There are a lot of iconic creatures over the years. The Frankenstein's monster, Pinhead, you know, that I don't care if you like horror or you don't like horror. It's an iconic image. It's an artistic image. You can't like... So to see that thing with all the three heads going and the laser breath and everything, I mean, that's a thing to see. <laughs> You've never seen that exactly like that before. Yeah, and I would say probably, you were talking about Hedera earlier, but probably one of the most formidable just malicious monsters that there is out there. I mean, in Destroy All Monsters, he's taking on like everyone. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely and, like the heavy hitter. He's the heel of the of the of the of the monster verse. Absolutely, yeah. Ghidorah almost any time it's on the screen, you know Godzilla is going to struggle to beat this thing. He's gonna have to call someone else in or something's gonna I mean in Destroy All Monsters, it's like you know, twelve on one or something and they're they're still struggling, but yeah, Ghidorah is just one of the most iconic and, you know, the winner of the Kaiju Kaiju polls I was running over on Twitter and Facebook came out on top there. Of course, Godzilla wasn't included in those, but definitely, I would say, one of the fan favorites. For sure. Yeah. With good reason. With good reason. Absolutely. All right. Do you want to give us our number three? Sure. So our number three is Gamera. Giant flying turtle, guys, is number Gamera, three. <laughs> Gamera. <laughs> What's the, the, I think it was Mystery Science Theater. They were adding extra lyrics to the song. And like, Gamera's cool and really neat. He is filled with turtle meat or something like that. I think it has the rare distinction of being like one of the only films that has been on uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 twice. So, <laughs> well, and and I think the funny the Gamera, the Invincible, the original film was very much like it's just pieces of Godzilla and pieces of Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and you know, and you go with it. And it's not a very good movie. Gamera sort of gets his uh, mojo when they bring in this idea that he's the protector of the Earth, but he's also the protector of children. Right? That there's always sort of a friend kids of the involved. children. Yeah, yeah, he's there for the kids, and he's he's come for the kids, and so, but not in a creepy way. And these giant <laughs> turtle, it's a giant turtle and you've had all this turtle imagery. You know, it's funny because then, you know, Stephen King brings the turtle <laughs> who's there to protect the children in it, <laughs> uh, but, but who's drawing on these ideas of the cosmic turtle. This is, I, I don't know how we've in our society and in, in embedded in our like primal myth making, we have this myth of the giant turtle, but they tap into it here. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, it, what it, but what's fascinating, I think, about the Gamera as a character is they take that ridiculousness and they make it very charming. You know, they make it charming. And I will say this. I don't think Gamera, this is my personal opinion, I don't think Gamera would be anywhere near this list if there were no the Heisei era Gamera films. If, if the 90s Gamera movies didn't exist, I think Gamera would be more like a quirky token thing that we knew about. But he would be pretty much relegated to bad movies from back in the day. Now, I like the old show of Gamera movies. Part of the problem is like Gamera kept getting cheaper and cheaper. And then like there was a movie in the eighties that was really just like a clip show held together by some of the worst footage made it. And you're like, Hey, this was made in the eighties. Like it's kind of <laughs> insulting, but in the nineties films, they give him this character, this idea of the guardian of having this psychic link and making him a character that sort of rivals Godzilla in terms of, 
his durability and his ability to sort of like be used in the story in a way that matters. Like, okay, everybody revolves around Gamera now. Uh, and it isn't just that Gamera kind of shows up and does a thing. Like the Heisei era takes what they did with Godzilla to some extent, but up in so legendary Godzilla, the Godzilla that we see fighting the Mutos and everything like that, that's just Gamera, right? Like yeah. that's the Heisei era Gamera mythology. That's not the previous Godzilla mythology. Even no. even the Godzilla from the seventies, uh, there was a couple where oh yeah, he's going to show up and do things, but. You know, and he's going to be the hero, but that's just sort of what he does. He's always been this force of nature that's uncontrollable and is more likely to destroy you than save you. There's no reason he's dedicated to the planet and therefore to some degree beholden to human beings. All of that is Gamera mythology from the Heisei films, really, you know. And there's a moment in the Heisei films where they, they're, they're delving down into the ocean. And Atlantis plays an element into that into that universe as well. And they discover massive graveyard at the bottom of the ocean of all these shells where they realize that there have been protector turtles for time immemorable. That there will always be one and it will always be there. Uh, there's an image towards the end of Iris where Gamera is busted up and bloodied and now he's even like, he's been hobbled to a degree and he's still sort of trudging along, gotta make the donuts into the fray <laughs> to fight. You know, the last, the, the very last breath that he has will be dedicated to doing this. I love that take on the character and I think that character, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or if you think that I'm out of place, but I think they, that, that character arc is what they've used to establish a Godzilla in the legendary universe that that can be more than the villain and still be interesting. Yeah, because that Godzilla is 100% good guy, but when Godzilla's good guy in the Showa era like you were saying, it's it's goofy by the time he's become the good guy almost. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the Heisei era films are so good and you talk about, you know, this idea of there's been multiple Guardian Turtles. I mean, Gamera the Brave within the first 15 minutes of that movie or maybe even less than that there's this amazing scene where he's fighting the Gauss and sacrifices himself to save the planet. And, you know, we get a reincarnated Gamera later on. But the yeah, the the design with the tusks and the fireballs and the just I, I don't know, maybe I like turtles, too. Maybe that's part of it. But <laughs> Who doesn't like turtles, right? Yeah, but he's just you're right. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to lay down everything. And it didn't take long for him to turn into that character where he is a protector. He's not a Godzilla knockoff anymore. He's got his own identity. And right. We're at the point Godzilla's knocking him off. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, my main question is how has there never been any kind of crossover through all these years and through the financial struggles that both those companies went through? How has there never been any kind of deal struck between the two? I don't know. But. I know that John Carpenter made a student film that I don't know if it's out there or not called Gamma versus Godzilla. I mean, that's the one, right? We got to, we got, we got to track that. Wait, that's going to bring him out of retirement. He's got to, he's got to go back touch. and remake that. Right. Yeah. He's got to work with um, Takahashi Miike since he's <laughs> doing the, I mean, did you know that he, in the latest Yokai monster film that he had Daimajin in there, Miike put it in there. I didn't see that. I've seen the I original. Seen I don't think it's over here yet, but I heard. Oh, you know, I'm hold on. I, I got to I have to correct myself because who? what would it be if you didn't have to cut something that I said out? 
John Carpenter Godzilla versus Gorgo. My mistake. Oh, that's very different. That's yes, very, different. very, very different. <laughs> but either way, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about Gamera. I just love that he, you know, he flies. He can shoot fire. He's strong and like if he's going hand to hand in combat. I just really like Gamera. And Powered the, by farts, as we've said before. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can't. I don't know how many times I can say it, but you've got to check Gamera out if you've been a Godzilla fan and haven't watched any of those because they definitely have a different vibe. All right, I'll set up our number two, which is Mothra. And Mothra is unique in one that I don't think, I mean, a lot of them are indetermined and we don't know, but Mothra is a female kaiju. Also, I mean, one of my earliest memories of watching these Godzilla films was you know, watching these two little tiny twins sing for Mothra to show up in the uh, Shobajin. And that that's just always stuck. That's such an iconic part of Godzilla. And you get Mothra in here, who is also usually a protector. I mean, I think that is the parallel creature to Gamera, right? Where Mothra is usually trying to save humanity. I mean, the only reason Mothra is on a rampage in the first film is because they... You know, I can't remember if it's with I think they kidnapped the Shobajin. They do. They and, do. That's why she goes yeah. back to get them. Yes. But you get so many. The thing is, when you get Mothra, you never know if Mothra is going to start out as a larva, if Mothra is going to start out as a moth and die and then come back as a larva. Like there is just an endless cycle of Mothra. And that kind of reflects on the endless cycle of butterflies and moths and stuff in general, right? Where they're always, they have very short lifespans and they're going through changes. And I think one of my favorite things with Mothra, other than, I mean, Mothra is just a beautiful design as a creature. But in that 1992 film, when the larva is shooting the web up in the air, whatever that is to create the cocoon, and you've got this just beautiful song playing, you've got the background, it's like a twilight sky going on. I absolutely love that. And Mothra has always been one of my favorites. Um, I even when I was a kid, remember liking the rebirth of Mothra films, which I don't think are great. But yeah, Nathan, you want to give us a little little take on Mothra? Yeah, I, I love Mothra. I, I think that it's a. It was the perfect thing to bring in, in terms of this the Godzilla series, because later you kind of get this point where they're just they're rapid fire shooting off monsters, right? You know, mm-hmm. and it's like the next one's going to be this. And it's going to be that. And they, they all kind of feel the same where they feel like you take a couple pieces of this and mix it in and a couple pieces of that. And we're still very firmly rooted in that point where Honda is sort of, you know, kind of sparingly bringing in creatures and he's doing them in a measured sort of way and sticking with things that are familiar. Here's a dinosaur. Here's another dinosaur. Here's a pterodactyl. Here's a, a Tyrannosaurus. Uh, we are in Kong in. And so after that, it's like, well, how do we bring in something that's going to be a formidable, but very different? And I don't even like just think about like what goes into thinking, you know, what's going to be a great foil for a dinosaur is a giant moth. <laughs> you know, like that's what's going to that that's going to be a beautiful thing to watch. And strangely, it really is like when Godzilla fights Mothra. Now, we've already had Mothra standalone film. There's a bit where she grabs his tail and is just dragging him around and sort of <laughs> lighting on his back and attacking him. And it's one of the best giant monster fight scenes I've ever seen. You know, it's a, to, like another 
big standard for me is like the seven voyages of Sinbad when you watch the Cyclops fight the dragon and you get you wrap your head around that, but how do you wrap your head around a giant moth fighting a dinosaur, right? Like an irradiated dinosaur that's trying to shoot it with atomic breath. I love and I love all of Mothra's iterations. Um I did think she was a little bit underused. Uh, there were beautiful images, but she was underused in the legendary film. I think I could have used a lot more yeah. of Mothra. Yeah. I thought that she, I, I love the, the different variations. I liked that there was a very fuzzy Mothra look in the uh, GMK, like very, very uh, huggable. But for me, Mothra will all, and, and, and I, you know, I recently got those, uh, Ma- rebirth of mothra movies they're very much kids movies but they are yes. fun they're fun they're li- they're fantasy adventure films and they they have a they have a charm to them for me though it's the first movie it's the the original mothra movie because i saw it when i was a kid and i loved that idea that moth the mothra movie is sort of that's honda sort of doing his take on king kong really in a sense mm-hmm. you know where you've got the island this is where we first get this idea of this, this sort of mythical island where they're going to be, you know, they find these things that they've never seen. And they, what do we want to do? We want to take these, we want to take the show and we want to take them back and we're going to, you know, put them in show business and we're going to keep them in captivity and everything <laughs> that we expect. And then it's the Mothra that goes looking for them. And then we see this rampaging thing. And I, I as a kid, I expected to see the moth like immediately. My my, I had had family members that said this movie is great. It's moth is a giant moth, and I was like, this movie's not about a giant moth. It's about a giant caterpillar. <laughs> is it ever going to turn into a moth? But the caterpillar and watching it do its thing, it's um, it's so cool. It's so fun to watch that usual monster destruction, and then it becomes the moth, and then it's like, wow, it's beautiful. And I like that there's a resolution that 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 eventually can see Mothra stop destroying things. The goal of the film is not to kill Mothra, right? And it just becomes a very different take on the concept of what's the relationship between nature and man and the in-between of what man has done to nature. Like in Godzilla, there's only one recourse, which is that nature's vengeance will destroy us unless we create worse weapons than we already have. Like the only way to survive is to bomb nature until it leaves us alone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and in doing so, we'll have created something much worse. You know, the, what the oxygen destroyer begets in the in the Ize films is, you know, something much worse. And so I like that the flip side of that is that there is an option for man and nature to coexist and create something, uh, to create something and not destroy something. Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole, the whole balance of mother. And I, it's funny, we mentioned the rebirth of Mothra films, and Nathan, I didn't know if you knew this, but I think I talked about it on another episode, is they were trying to get a standalone, the director who did um, Biolante was trying to get a standalone Mothra movie and a Mothra series off the ground. And I think, unfortunately, that turned into rebirth of Mothra when they you know, couldn't compete against the U.S. Godzilla that came out in 98. But I would have just loved, I always am up for more Mothra. That's and for the it's record, just, those yeah. rebirth movies are way better than Godzilla '98. Yeah, they're not bad. They're just very much aimed at kids, like some of those Gamera movies yeah, yeah. were. The '98 yeah, Godzilla is aimed at no one. I'm just saying. No. <laughs> but you know, when I was when I was young and watching these movies, it was even though you'd watched all these monsters, the ones that always stood out in your mind were other than Godzilla. You know, you've got King Ghidorah, 
and you've got Madara. And I think those are the two big ones that just have always stood out. And they're always etched in my mind as some of my favorites. Okay, do you want to give us our number one, which is probably no surprise to anyone? Right, right. So, yeah, guess what? Number one uh, is 1998's Godzilla. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) but, but But it is Godzilla. And, I mean... That's not surprising. I think that if you're asking your average person who maybe doesn't even know that much about monsters, they're going to probably throw at you Godzilla or King Kong. And I, you know, I think that these two are very durable for a reason. The interesting thing, of course, is Godzilla when Honda creates Godzilla and Honda, of course, had been in, had had seen war and more time. And that factors heavily into how that original film is done. We, when we get to the giant moths and we get to the robots and the mecha Godzillas and the smog monsters and the giant shrimp and everything else that Godzilla <laughs> has become over the years and encountered over the years and with the point where there's spy movies and then, you know, it's a little kid's daydream, we lose the sight of where the character really came from, which is very much to the point, you know, your, your podcast is screaming through the ages as a horror podcast is very much Godzilla's rooted in a very um and really deeply felt horror, you know, a horror that's a mix of melancholy and awe and fear and foreboding because of where what he's coming from, you know, that the the obviously the bomb, the the nuclear bomb is in every cell of Godzilla both literally and figuratively in the sense of what you're seeing there is Honda finding a way to put the devastation, the hurt, the pain, and the um, even the wonder, in a sense, of what happened with the, with the bombing of Hiroshima. Those images and what they would mean to a to a Japanese audience member they're they're presented in Godzilla in a way that's just as harrowing as they are in other films around this time frame that is the made in Japan about Hiroshima. Right. And so there are very harrowing sequences of people with radiation poisoning. See what happens in the wake of Godzilla. But I know the other thing about the Godzilla as a character is how they take traditional Japanese cultural mythologies and build them up into this monster, right? This isn't just a, a creature that has been created from this bomb that, another country dropped on us it is born from our own mythologies it's born from within us you know s in an essence and i love that but let's forget all that stuff how about how terrifying like now i look at it and it looks kind of like someone like melted half of a grover puppet you know (laughs) but um when you watch him he's like he looks like cookie monster if cookie monster was really gnarly and yet the way it's shot, particularly some of the slow move, the the the, the 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 slow motion sequence that happened under the water towards the end, and the way he's presented there, and then just some of the stark images of him standing next to the power lines, like there's yep. some real horror in those sequences. Even that the special effects are, you know, a little bit janky. The the art artistry that Honda brings to it. There are, there are scenes, God, that again, that's another film that as a kid gave me nightmares because I wasn't thinking of a, 
a warm, comfy Godzilla. I was thinking in images of this thing bearing down. It's going to bring destruction. It's going to be terror. And it's going to leave death in its wake. You know, it's kind of death incarnate, right? And yep. it's all because of us. It's all because of people. Yeah, and you mentioned that power line scene. And that is one of the first memories I have of Godzilla particularly. I think it was like a holiday of some sort. And I was sitting on the floor at my grandma's house and watching the original Godzilla on TV. I'm sure it was the King of the Monster version, but um, just that shot with him and the power lines and everything like that. And it's just, oh, Godzilla is just such, I don't even know what to say because it's just such an iconic character that's been going on for years and years. And there's so many iterations. It's almost like, except if you talk about the, you know, six or seven Heise films, there's almost no continuation or continuity throughout the movies. But it just keeps it's a character that keeps re being reinvented, not only in what the creature's doing or destroying, but also in the way it looks. And we have so many different designs and iterations of Godzilla. And you're right. It's just a culture that has had a tragedy happen to them and absorbed it and had to live with this. And it's just part of their DNA now. And they're making these movies about essentially the dangers of radiation and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, yeah, I don't know what else to say here, Nathan, but Godzilla is just one of the, the best creatures there are. Do you have a particular Godzilla design that stands out to you that you love? Yeah. Well, the thing is the Godzilla design that I probably, the one I grew up with and I probably saw in the toys and everything and on the covers of magazines is somewhere between probably somewhere between that, like the, the, the Gojira, the 1954 movie. And then what we get to in the seventies, but I honestly, I think my favorite design personally speaking is the Godzilla of Godzilla 1985 or return of Godzilla. Yeah. And I guess the yep. same Godzilla that shows up in Biolante. I think that's more mine as well. About the yep. So I'd say between those two films, that's the look. It's fearsome. It's scary. And and it's the point, too, where the special effects have arrived, where at least Godzilla is symmetrical, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. meaning that he, you don't see as many of the suit malfunctions or, or the suit blemishes. You know, I think in the, even the original, you see, okay, I can see how that jaw is moved to the side or that's not lined up right. Like there's a, there's something about the, the design of the monster in the, in the eighties film. And then the, 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 I guess they're both in 80 cause it's 89 really is when Biolante's made. Yep. Right. Like, so yep. those two films that come out in the eighties to me, they have the best suit design and they aren't marred at this point by like trying to throw some extra special effects in or use some CGI. I do like the sort of thick Godzilla that we get in the legendary films. I mean, he's pretty impressive and, and pretty cool. I particularly like how he's, he's even, I think he, they have to make him a little bit more lithe so we can believe he jumps, you know, in like Kong <laughs> versus Godzilla. I really loved his design in that film. But to me, it's that, it's those two films in 80, 85 and 89, because they give you that juggernaut Godzilla. It's coming. It's going to destroy you. They move away from the silliness completely. And yet from a visual perspective, it's scary without having some of the like gaffes that like the others make beautiful still shots until they move. And I think the eighties ones, they move with something that is bordering on realism. And that's, it's funny you say that because that's what I was thinking as well as return of Godzilla as my favorite Godzilla design 
and even some of the shots and the way they introduce Godzilla in there. And I will say another one that gets kind of it's a different design, but Godzilla 2000 has a pretty gnarly design with the dorsal fins. And there's some shots in there that are reminiscent of something like Jurassic Park or something with a tunnel. And I think that's a decent Godzilla before they get into the much more CGI driven or weird looking Godzilla's post 2000. But um, I agree with you with the Godzilla in those films is my favorite as well. All right. Is there anything else you want to say about Godzilla, Nathan? No, I, the only thing I will say is he, despite the, all the different variations, despite all the different versions, I think that what's been proven and borne out, I think by that 98 film is that there is an ethos or there's an, there's a, there is a sort of like baseline or a heart to Godzilla that, that you do sort of need to adhere to. It does need to be this force of nature. It needs to be this juggernaut. It needs to have this sort of feeling of awe and, and terror mixed together. And it needs to feel like the namesake, like a God, you know, it, it has to feel like something that we are not likely to overcome in and of ourselves. And I think the 98 movie makes all these giant mistakes by essentially trying to have this giant monster and then uh, come up with, with ways to make it different and, and have it be about the characters, except, you know, it's not very good at doing that either. And so what you essentially get is just a giant reptile, you know, it's just a giant lizard. And I think honestly, if we're being honest, it's much easier to end up with that kind of thing than it is to end up with what the Godzilla movies became. So for everyone who looks at these movies and all oh, silly garbage, there's a little bit of there is some artistry going on that allows them to achieve what they did because it isn't that easy. And Roland Emmerich will tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with the 98 design if it's not Godzilla, if it's some other creature or something. But, you know, you can't tell me you can say they're silly all you want, but you can't tell me, you know, in 2014, when you hear the iconic Godzilla roar. You see the atomic breath for the first time or this, you know, the dorsal fins light up. There's a certain I mean, you're watching a movie. say there's a new Godzilla film and you just hear in the distance that Godzilla roar. I mean, you're going to get chills. Probably. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like the character has that power to do that to you. Last thing. Promise. Last thing. I would be remiss not to mention, um, although it's not my favorite design. I really love what was done with the Shin Godzilla that was done after the first legendary film uh, because that's another one that shakes up gods a little bit and gives you the, the evolution of the creature in a way we've never seen before. It's a little weird, but I it think it's me very out. interesting. It is freaky. It, 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 again, <laughs> restores Godzilla back to horror movie on one end, but then the, the real horror of, of Shin Godzilla is bureaucracy, bureaucracy. right? Yeah. <laughs> watching, watching people have to get 15 forms rubber stamped before they can even start to deal with this thing that is just decimating the countryside. Yep, absolutely. So that is our combined list. Sorry, Jackson. Destroya is not on there. Um, I don't dislike this. I gotta I gotta say, yeah, we're gonna talk about honorable mentions. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Destroya really, I mean because we collated the list, you know, and I think I like it was a little I don't know if it was even in my top ten, but it that is a great monster. And it's a great Godzilla monster. And um and it it's built in to the myth Godzilla mythology so well. I was so impressed when I saw that film, the idea that this is that if Godzilla is essentially the son of the atom bomb, right. That used to stop world war two, then destroyer is the son of the oxygen destroyer that was used to stop Godzilla. And yeah. so 
it's sort of this one horror begets another horror begets another horror. And um, I really like that. Yeah. And that's one of the the best movies in the way it it all goes and it kind of pulls in the the series altogether because it was maybe going to be the last film at one point. But yeah, absolutely. Destoroyah. I think we both agree. You had mentioned earlier that Titanosaurus is really cool. Yeah, in that silly sort of of the silly seventies monsters ways. I really like I like King Caesar too. I think that they're oh, I love fun King Caesar, yep. monsters and they work really well in that universe. And that without having to bring the aliens back in and just beam in a new monster, right? Yep. Yeah, so I think those were definitely ones that might have been in our honorable mentions or right off the list. Um do you want to talk about maybe some unless you had any other honorable mentions, do you want to talk about maybe some other more weird ones or that we wouldn't necessarily think are kaiju that you want to shout out. Sure. The only other um, kaiju that I really wanted to mention that I don't think we talked about much here, but I personally love the design is Manda, the sort of oh, like yeah. yep. giant like sea snake essentially. But when I saw, saw it for the first time, it kind of, and I think it was destroy all monsters is where I saw it for mm-hmm. the first time as definitely has a um, feel goes back to that traditional Chinese drag, uh, well, not yeah, the Chinese. No, it is a Chinese dragon drag, yep. sort of look is really what I would what I would uh, qualify it as, and it the way it moves again. We're not looking at a person in a suit exactly, and I love that those are the, those are sort of the monsters that are always I enjoy the most. But kaiju wise, I think that's the only other one that I mean we didn't talk much about Angiris. We should you know I do uh, yeah he's a he's a great looking monster. He's, you know, he's right up there, too, in terms of, like, how much he features into the series. And he gets to be, like, Godzilla's side. If Godzilla's got a wingman, it's Anguirus, right? Like, I think, yeah. well, Mothra's, like, his wing lady, I guess. Yeah, but, but, you know, but poor, wings. poor Anguirus but. gets kind of forgotten until we get Final Wars after, um, I think the last, I don't think he's in Terra Mecha Godzilla, right? He's just, or maybe he is. No, no. Okay, uh, maybe just uh, Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, but yeah, that's a mainstay of the series up until then, and they're kind of they were the first ones to fight, but they were also yeah, he was the, the first, first friends, right? the first friends, right? Yeah, <laughs> the first battle. It's like he's he's Apollo. Okay, here goes my here I go again. He's Apollo Creed, really, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I but I so he's a good, he's a great monster. I got he's sitting up here on the shelf too. I trying to think of any others that we haven't really mentioned, but I, oh, you got I had to give a shout out to Batra. Yes, yeah, I do Batra, like Batra, which is sort of yep. like the the other the flip side of of uh, Mothra. So, yeah, I think that's it. Cool. Any other weird monsters you want to talk about, or are you good on those ones? Saving those ones until we do a a monster episode, American monster episode, almost. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm trying to think. Is there any other like really odd? I will say so. Honorable mentions, since we did mention a couple, I had a couple. Yeah. Again, as weird monsters, but the um. In the, in the the Harryhausen vein, two that kind of didn't make the list, and partially it was because, you know, they are just a little bit smaller. So right aside, well, they you know, do they qualify the twenty feet? They maybe get close, but uh, there's a Ymir from the um, Twenty Million Miles to Earth, which is a Harryhausen movie that starts out with a very small creature and it slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And sort of we watch through these growing stages where it starts out as something that's big enough to fit on a table. And by the end, it's in the Roman Coliseum and it's fighting an elephant, you know, <laughs> and it's a great design. It's a great monster. It, it has very much some sort of a Godzilla feel to it, but th- there's something Harry Hudson was always very explicit about making, making sure his creatures were characters. And you have this creature that is not by any means evil. It's just then a new environment. And we're watching it sort of run amok in a classic sort of Kong fashion. And it's doing what it's going to do. And science is 
you know, humans and science are going to try and stop it if they can. But there's that dichotomy between destroying something that's new and wonder, wondrous versus trying to preserve it in some way. So I really like that. The Cyclops from Seven Voyages of Sinbad is great. And there is a kind of big monster fight at the end of that. You know, just shout out to the monsters that show up. Uh, the the um, the literally called kaiju in the Pacific Rim films. Yep. You know, I do like those. Uh, Ultraman and his sort of cabal of monsters are all great. Yeah, I think um, Gamora is pretty cool looking one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got a couple of them up here. They're really kind of like weird. There's there's definitely one that looks like uh, just Godzilla with a headdress. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you watch the first season of Ultraman, I am almost 100% certain. I'll try to find the image and send it. That it is that it's got it's the Godzilla suit, and they've just taped some extra stuff to the top of it and <laughs> come up awesome. with a monster. I think it's like called Secret Dinosaur Base was the episode or something oh like gosh. that. But um, yeah, there's not too many more that I could think of. A uh, two quick shout outs, I guess, to films that w- uh, really are sort of referencing or three uh, the Godzilla. We've talked about Cloverfield. I think if people haven't seen that one and they're into kaiju, the idea of the found footage kaiju movie that one works really well yep um big man japan is a super weird (laughs) japanese film that takes the idea of what if you sort of followed around talking head of of the guy that's got to fight these things like this this kind of mild-mannered everyday guy who grows to gigantic proportions um when they attach like the you know the actual power lines to his nipples (laughs) and then what they do is they stretch the giant spandex pants like a giant tent across the power lines and he grows into them (laughs) and then he goes (laughs) off to fight these monsters and the monsters that show up are very very weird colossal uh the nacho figalando film that has anne hathaway in it uh and jason sudeikis have you seen that one i haven't nope it's been on my list for a while that's very interesting uh that's a that's i you're not gonna get a lot of monster fights but What's done with the concept is very interesting. And I think that in in classic fashion where Honda always tried to think about what do these monsters represent in the human id, there's a lot of that in the film. And I do recommend it. It's a good movie. Cool. Yeah, well, um, rest assured, even though the kaiju time has come to the end, giant monster movies have not seen their end on screen through the ages. And especially, you know, the, there's the legendary monster verse with, like you said, Pacific Rim and everything that wanting to be discussed. and the other monster movies of the fifties and all that. So it's not done. It's just done for now. I think definitely bring me back when you get to the 50. Oh, you're already, you're already on whatever, (laughs) whatever you want to talk about with giant monsters. You're one of the go-to giant monster sources. I feel like, but all right, we're going to talk a little bit before we go here about a weird film called Paul Gasari. (laughs) And I I just want to give some of the background to this and we can briefly, we both watched this for the, First time, you know, what, a couple weeks ago, probably the background of this movie is thank you, North Korea. Yeah, <laughs> the background of this is way more interesting than the actual movie, but we can just briefly talk about the movie after I go through this. So let's let's set this thing up a little bit. So it did release in 1985, but how this came about was. Kim Jong Il was a lifelong fan, and I think at the time he was the son of that current ruler. He is deceased at this point, but he was always he always loved the Godzilla and Kaiju films, and he always like held up on a pedestal this 1962 lost film 
by a certain director who he loved his work. And that was the first Korean monster movie, even before like Yongari. So what he did is he's like, I got to get us some of those monster movies to be propaganda films here in North Korea. So when Choi Eun-hee, and I apologize for the pronunciation of that in advance, was in Hong Kong, he had her kidnapped. And she was the girlfriend at the time of this director in South Korea, or maybe wife. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, he had her kidnapped in Hong Kong. Well, in true Giallo fashion, Shin Sang-uk, who is the director, went to Hong Kong because he was suspected and went there to figure out what was going on and do his own investigation. Well, he got kidnapped too. And they were uh, taken away to North Korea and they were held for, I think, a couple years before he actually agreed to do these propaganda films and was reunited. <laughs> they, I mean, they didn't see each other for a couple of years. So yeah, he ended up in an actual like prison, prison. because yeah. he was trying to escape. And he was, yeah. yeah, and he was given re-education and pretended he made them think the re-education worked on him, but it, in all reality, it did not. So he was brought in to do all these propaganda films, and I think he did a great deal of them. The interesting thing, another cool thing about Paul Gasari is Toho Studio uh, special effects staff were tricked into doing the special effects for Paul Gasari. They uh, they thought they were filming in China, and they ended up filming this North Korean movie and doing the special effects, and they were kind of held there. And you know, would you say no if you were already? Right there, the people probably right. have guns pointed at you. No, so that how this story ended is eventually they were in a they were on some kind of festival in Europe and they managed to escape from their handlers, get to a U.S. embassy and lived undercover in Virginia for a couple of years before they were, you know, were able to get back to their normal lives. But they were in the witness protection program or whatever that equivalent is living in Virginia. So it's a crazy story about how this was made. I mean, Kim Jong-il wanted this to be a uh, a metaphor for capitalism, how, you know, no matter how much you have, you're always going to have the greed for more. So, Nathan, let's talk a little bit about Paul Gasari. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean, this movie, essentially, the story is similar to a lot of things we've probably talked about. And I think... I think you have to remind yourself a lot of times that this came out in 1985 and not 1965, right? It's Uh, better actually, if you don't remind yourself (laughs) of that, because it'll just, it'll make it just worse. Yeah. So the way this opens up is we're in this village. That's very much oppressed. And I tell you, I think we both wanted to shut this thing off after like what, 30 minutes or so. I think you probably still did the whole film, but (laughs) yeah, you wanted to shut it off. I actually shut it off. (laughs) Um, and then I went back and like, you know, kind of did like the, the cliff notes version. Yeah. I I mean, I think, and it might've been the Stockholm syndrome, but I think there's a certain charm to (laughs) the uh, re-education to Paul Gasari as like the, it's just this giant overweight monster just stomping on a field going up at, um, uh, the same battle seemingly over and over again. And it's kind of like it, it morphs into an episode of almost you're seeing like the coyote and the road runner or, you know, uh, Sylvester and Tweety is like this army tries to figure out new ways to stop Paul Gasari. Let's build a pit and see if he falls in it. 
or let's take his um the woman who is connected to him and he can't attack us then yeah it's bootleg repurposed damaging really <laughs> yes it um, is go ahead Nathan. I don't have much to say. Uh, the, again, <laughs> not on like it's really bad. I mean, it really is. I mean, I guess you know some people will make the case like set the politics and and the fact that human beings were kidnapped to make this film uh, for a moment and look at it as a movie and you know it shows that there's a general cluelessness. Uh, not that the film is necessarily horribly horribly made. But there's nothing that feels particularly like human about it, right? Like it's everything is assembled. You've got these big sets. Uh, it's not, there's not a level of ineptitude or it's not the sense of ineptitude that comes with say like a, an Ed Wood film, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's this sheer giddiness to make a movie and yet it's falling apart at every end. The production of Pagasari, such as it is, is not awful, but the movie is just like a dead weight. And I think it's probably largely because everyone there was doing what they're doing, not because of a, a joy of of their craft, but a, a desire to still be alive at the end <laughs> of this. Yeah, and the funny thing is, is I saw the credits and the song that was playing during the credits, and I was thinking, okay, maybe this is pretty good. Because I think that was almost my favorite part of the movie, that song that was playing at the beginning while the credits rolled and that still image. And then the people start talking, and you just realize what this is. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and, and as you pointed out, that... The, but Jong, he had, he had he had tried to make the like he he fancied himself like a film lover. He'd seen lots of films. He clearly didn't learn much from them. But what I think he did pick up enough to know that this needed to be in the film was that okay, there is a certain sensibility of how these movies should look. That there should be this certain pedigree, and to a degree, again, if you think this movie was made in the nineteen sixties, it's not so bad. It does look like some of the other like not high level list like you know not martial art but some of the samurai films that were being Mm -hmm. done in japan like there paul gasari can sort of like mimic one of those again mid-60s movies (laughs) pretty well then the monster comes in and monster is completely silly because to start with these small just again like we talked about with the emir and he kind of grows by eating the stuff out of the foundry, out of the, you know, the Deep black iron. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's, he's consuming all of this. Yeah. I have basically at that point was like, I'm done. And I uh, was skipped around. Nothing new seemed to be happening again. There's some, there, there are these vague political points that they seemingly want to make, but they're also pushing back to the degree they can. But uh, you just end up with this hodgepodge that doesn't really say anything either way. But the, the, the idea, of course, is that Pulgasari is necessary. Well, he's supposed to be necessary to stop these invaders, but he doesn't really do a whole lot other than he eventually sort of spurs the, the, the other humans to do something. Except for the point where he just keeps eating and eating and eating, <laughs> and eventually he's so big and fat that he's like... He's a, he's a danger to consuming everything they have and eating all their weapons and leaving them completely defenseless. But he's also just going to trip and fall into the, into like the Shogun's temple and destroy them by (laughs) sheer default, which is kind of staggering. No pun intended to me. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to love that scene at the end where he's just sitting there and he's eating too much. (laughs) He looks like he's got indigestion or something. Right. Like, like many of the the classic monsters, you know, Godzilla, (laughs) uh, full spoilers. Like you, he eventually the, the high Godzilla 
ignites from within. You know, he's a he's an internal reactor, and he's going to explode. And he goes out in a white hot blaze. And I mean, Mothra dies many times over either defending, you know, her progeny or defending humanity. Sometimes even defending Godzilla. Gamera, you know, he's here for the world. Paul Gasseri, uh, you know, quote unquote, dies eating. Eating what he loves, right? <laughs> eating what he loved. Eating the things that he loved. Eating what he loved, right? Like, and uh, it's, I guess, uh, you got to go out, right? Well, that's that's like what the equivalent of choking on a potato chip. And yeah, <laughs> I think that's what the I mean, that was the very heavy handed message of the film, right? It's just capitalism always consumes and will never be happy until it envelops the thing that it loves. But I think it's funny. But it's I don't... not worth, guys, by the way, than fascism. I'm just saying it's not no, worse. No. <laughs> um, but I tell you, I don't even know. I think I wonder if the director threw something in because there's some kind of thing at the very end of this message where our main character says, you know, all we need is peace in the world and no more war and no more fighting. And I wonder if that was snuck in in post or something. I don't know. And not well, screen through it, the- <laughs> yeah, it's there. But then the me- as you point out, Trey, the message that comes directly in the heels of that is, well, what does peace buy you? It buys you lots of hungry mouths that will eat everything up. So <laughs> yep. uh, with a true. war, there's going to be enough to go around because some of you are going to be dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't. I don't. It's a very bizarre sort of. I don't know what's going on there. Listen, I don't want to talk about this anymore, but I'm just saying <laughs> in the middle in the middle of this thing, you're right. It's absolutely the same thing over and over and over. It's just Paul Gasari stumbles his way onto a battlefield. They're trying to stop him. They can't listen. It's stupid. It's <laughs> like watching like the Monty Python version of a kaiju <laughs> film, except without the wit. And the intention. I don't and think the it's intention, intentionally. That's too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. This thing is not worth I mean, there's going to be some people that go out there and seek this out for sure. The YouTube quality is atrocious. This thing looks like it was on a film reel from like 1942 or something. Look, we're not getting a high def version of this <laughs> thing anytime soon. No. So, uh, I mean, for me, this is uh, a complete and void. If you're curious, I mean, look into more of the backstory of the film. That's much more interesting than the actual movie. Or just watch I the scenes I'd with like Paul Gasari. I'd like to see a film based off of that story. That's yes. Like or just watch, you know, the Paul Gasari stumbling around a battlefield until, or, you know, when he's tiny and he's crawling up someone. <laughs> <laughs> around he's some not a bad, what's the best way to describe him he's kind of like a big fat minotaur that's sort of yes, what he looks like to absolutely me, sort of. yeah like a, a reptilian or, minotaur type he looks like honestly we talk about how many of the godzilla enemies look like they belong in like power rangers but i think i said to trey he looks like he's like the third you know in teenage mutant Charles, you have rocksteady and bebop and it's like paul gasseri would be their like third man you know yeah <laughs> they needed another ga- they had to expand the gang yeah, absolutely. But and and you'd say completely avoid this one, right? Again, unless you're somebody that really I I think we have friends out there who like this, but like I think unless you're someone who's really that kind of completist that you want to kind of just see schlock and see the absurdity and the levels of schlock. I, I do think, again, from a historical perspective and understanding the backstory and then seeing what was achieved on screen and these things that you and I have just sort of alluded to, the idea of like what 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 happens when your message is so so inconsistent and so nonsensical that it doesn't even make sense in the context of a monster movie? You know, maybe you yep. shouldn't be ruling a country with that ethos. But <laughs> furthermore, the idea of 
filmmakers working sort of literally under the gun, <laughs> quite yep. honestly, and then still trying to find a way to seed some of what they feel is important into the story. I think those are all the contexts with which you can watch the movie, but you're not going to, you're not going to have fun with this the way you're going to have fun with most of the movies we mentioned tonight. No, I, like I said, the only redeeming quality for me is there's a certain kind of weird charm to Paul Gasari stumbling into buildings and sitting there at the end of the movie because he's eaten too much and he's just about to explode. But um, yeah, let's let's move on from Paul Gasari. But there is no way I'm going to just say this. Now, there's no way that anyone, particularly because this film does take, you know, is intended to take place in an older era to, to, to look mid, you know, like feudal in a sense, no one is going to think this movie was made in 1980, whatever. 85. No, no, yeah. no. And I tell you, if this thing gets some kind of physical release, which I don't ever foresee it getting, I'm just going to be very upset because there, there are a lot better films that need releases out there than Paul Gasari. All right, Nathan. I appreciate you coming on and talking this stuff in true fashion. We went, think probably longer than we thought we were going to do, but that's okay. I think we had some good discussions and it's just fun talking about these Kaiju and I probably won't be able to do it on a podcast in this form for a little bit. So uh, do you want to go ahead and give your plugs and tell everyone where they can find you? Sure. Uh, you can find me at the Phantom Galaxy podcast over there with Bill Van Vegel, who's my co-host. We have a lot of co-hosts though. There are a lot of different, uh, as was alluded to Trey. There's a lot of different kind of shows that we do over there under the umbrella of Phantom Galaxy. We've got a I kind of was on hiatus because my whole family got COVID here and we were sick for a while and school started. So sort of digging out of that and getting everything to go. But we've got several shows coming up and then we're going to have a, a fun sort of lineup for October doing a lot of things there. Uh, but you can catch us over there. It's on Facebook at Phantom Galaxy. And you can uh, we have a, a Facebook group there. You can get us on Twitter at Phantom Galaxy. Uh, it's phantomgalaxypodbean.com, but you can also find us pretty much where any podcatchers are. And uh, we in, in those other podcasts, we have Strange Frequencies that covers music, The Illustrated Fan, which covers animated films. And we have one that's just started. It's Phantom Video that Trey is a co-host on. It's myself, Trey, and Dave Becker. And we go through, uh, we kind of try to cover the releases that are happening. Uh, the one that we just put up actually covers August because, again, kind of out of the picture for a little bit. But we went through all the releases for August. We will have coming uh, an episode coming up soon where we'll look at releases for September and October. And then we often will we'll bring reviews of movies or we're, we're going to start sort of series where we are reviewing physical media. That's really what Phantom Video is about. So if you uh, want to head on over to the Facebook page and drop us any thoughts you have on physical media you'd like to see covered, uh, a lot of cool stuff going on over there. I don't think there's anything else that I've missed. But uh, yeah, that's... Uh, that's what I've got going on. Awesome. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun talking um, about the physical media stuff with you guys and especially you two that know so much about all genres. So I can't wait for that one to or it's going to be out in the wild at this point. I hope everyone's digging it and liking that show. I am planning over here a fun slate of stuff for October as well. This one will probably release on the first week of October to kind of kick off the season. I would be doing two giallo focused episodes that are going to be a little different than anything I've done before. And in that, as I've probably mentioned so many times, I am trying to enlist your help. So if you love giallos and want to leave some quick thoughts about any of your favorites, um, what was your first giallo? You know, if you're new to the genre and you're just watching a giallo, uh, blind watching a giallo, 
that's a dangerous game, but you can do it. Um, <laughs> and I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a voicemail for the show at 740-297-6556. Or if you want to send a recording of yourself into screaming through the ages at yahoo.com. Um, I'm also planning on having a couple of bonus episodes up throughout the month of October that are going to be a little bit different than stuff I normally do as well. So other than that, you can find the podcast over on Facebook at the group uh, Screaming Through the Ages. I am over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I don't think I plugged this, but I am over on Letterboxd at Trey W. I don't think I've ever plugged that on the show, but I am over there if you want to follow me over there and see what I'm watching. And yeah, that's about it. I appreciate having Nathan on and Nathan, you taking the time to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a really fun time. And other than that, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly horror movie history lesson.